Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, let's take our Bibles again tonight and we'll turn once more to Revelation chapter 11. And we'll read again from the verse number 1 of Revelation chapter 11. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out, and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, clothed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees, and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. And these have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues, as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people, and kindreds, and tongues, and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry, and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half the Spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven, saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Amen. We look to God to again bless His Word to our hearts this evening. Uh, clearly, uh, we're in the section of Revelation that has been subject of, of much debate. Uh, I'm not unmindful that uh, there are very good men who take different positions on some of these verses. They are hard to understand in some ways, uh, and I think there are often interpretations that are given that have certainly some degree of credence. And you can certainly see where people come to the conclusions that they come to. And so I come tonight again humbly to really give you what I see as the most tenable and consistent interpretation of these verses, but mindful that many of you, you may come to different conclusions. Can we find ourselves having to simply search the Scriptures to see if they think these things are so, and to do all we can in our power to rest upon the Spirit of God to seek to understand these things that are given to us for our edification? It is not, it is not a, a good attitude for the child of God to say, these things are too complex, therefore I will not try. And the Lord God of heaven has given us these things to comfort our hearts. And that really is my focus in this next sort of section of this series. 
The focus of the studies going forward is less verse by verse and more an attempt to show that the visions are given to encourage the church as it faces persecution that it has a relevance particularly to the first century church. And then I do believe it has ongoing relevance to the entire church in the entire gospel age. And tonight our focus falls on these two witnesses that are mentioned in verse number three. And I will give power unto my two witnesses. And the description of these witnesses comes in the context of the Lord encouraging the church between the sixth trumpet that sounds wrath, and the seventh trumpet that sounds the note of the church glorified. And you'll see the seventh trumpet mentioned there in verse number 15, where there are great voices in heavens, and the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so between uh, the revelation of God's wrath upon the world, trumpet number six, and trumpet seven, the church glorified, there are encouragements given to the church. And we saw a similar pattern in the seals that we considered in our previous studies. Now, this encouragement in chapter 11 began with the instruction to measure the temple. The temple that we saw pictures the true church, the true worshippers, the people of God who are not marked by physical circumcision, but circumcision of the hearts, those who rejoice in Christ and worship in the Spirit at the altar that is mentioned there in the verse number one. This is the company of the worshippers, and they are measured by God. They're marked out. They're known of God. The Lord knows those who are His. And to the, the very fact that we're known of God brings much encouragement. And so you see in these opening words that the church that worships is a church that is under the watch of God, and therefore under the care of God, under the provision of God. But it is also then the church that bears witness. Verse number three, I will give power unto my two witnesses. And immediately I've assumed here that these witnesses represent the New Testament church. And I've got to try to prove that to you, and I trust I'll do so in a way that will edify you and encourage you as you live in the world in these troubling times. First of all, note then the duration of their witness. And we're given a duration here, verse number three. They prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. One thousand two hundred and sixty, forty-two months times thirty. Now the same time period as we have back in the verse number two, with the Gentiles treading the holy city under foot. Now, the holy city here, mentioned in verse number 2, is a picture of unbelieving Israel. The court is distinct from the temple. The temple clearly portrays the true worshippers. The courts are separate from the temple. They're not unconnected. And so there is a separation. And it is this description of the unbelieving Jew pictured again in the temple, or pictured again in the court that is underfoot of the Gentiles for these 40 and two months. Now, last time we saw the parallel with this, and the words of Christ in the Olivet Discourse given to us by Luke in Luke 21, where we're told, Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We're given this description, a time period, the times of the Gentiles, and until then, Jerusalem is trodden underfoot of the Gentiles. Now, 
I think this time of the Gentiles is referred to by Paul in Romans chapter 11, that blindness has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so we're seeing this parallel here. Israel, Christ, came unto his own. His own received him not. The gospel came to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And so we're seeing unbelieving Israel. And they've been given over to blindness until the times of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, come in. Now, whatever the end of this period is, uh, and there you're certainly going to see differences of opinion amongst good people, what marks the end of the time of the Gentiles, whatever the end of it is, I think it is clear the period begins in the first century. So whatever the end is, the times of the Gentiles at least begins in the first century, consistent with that time in and around A.D. 70. And you see that in the book of Acts. For a time, the gospel's going to uh, the Jews, and then you'll see Peter and Paul, and they're, if you like, they're washing their hands, and they're going to the Gentiles with the word of God, the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. That's consistent also with the similar time period referred to in Revelation chapter 5, where again you have uh, the wilderness, a place prepared of God, fed there for a thousand two hundred and three score days. This is a description, I believe, of the true church again. They're in the wilderness, they're guarded by God. The time period is the same, but that time period follows after verse number five, the child being cut up to God and to his throne. The man child ruling all nations, clearly a reference to Christ Jesus. And the man child, Jesus Christ, who came as our Redeemer. And so we're seeing this time period again, that if verse number 6 of Revelation 12 follows the ascension of Christ, well then again we're back into the first century. So therefore, the work of these witnesses, in verse number 3 of chapter 11 again, par given to the witnesses is a work that begins in the first century. Now, it has a conclusion. Uh, we see the conclusion there in verse number 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them and kill them. Now, here we're seeing the great trouble that awaits the church of Christ, these witnesses. They're going to encounter great trouble. But that is not the end. There's a short time period, verse 11, three and a half days. And after three and a half days, this picture it again, this uh, figurative language that speaks of a short time. The spirit of life enters into them. They rise again. And then verse number 12, they are called up and ascend to heaven. And so it is, again, my suggestion, again, these are difficult verses. It is my suggestion that what happens at the end of the age is there's a short time period where the church suffers so greatly, it appears if all is lost. But all is not lost with God. For time will come when the Spirit of God comes and the church revives and then is taken to be with the Lord forevermore. In the return of Christ, his ascension of Christ, or the ascension of the church, the rapture of the church, if you like, uh, alongside the coming of Christ, referred to there, I suspect, in verse number 12. Again, that idea of the church suffering trouble at the end of the age is consistent with what we see in the likes of Second Thessalonians. That before Christ returns, there will be a falling away, and the man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition. 
So we expect this trouble, even in Paul's teaching in that epistle. There's going to be a time period where the church will be in great trouble, and the world will rejoice. They're going to make merry. They're going to send gifts, because the two prophets, oh, they appear to die. All to say that the duration of the work of these witnesses seems to encompass the entire period from the first century right up to the time just before Christ returns. A period of time of at least now 2,000 years. And if that duration can be defended, that it's in this time period of at least 2,000 years and going forward, well, therefore, these two witnesses are not two literal individuals, not two literal men, but rather it is a figure of speech again, a picture of the faithful church and these two witnesses. Now, if that's the duration, I think it can also prove that with regard to the duty of these witnesses. We get an insight into their duty. They're, they're called to witnesses, verse number 3, and their task is to prophesy. They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred uh, threescore days. Their task is to prophesy, verse number 6, it says, uh, reign not in the days of their prophecy. They're also referred to as prophets, verse number 10, the two prophets tormenting them that dwelt on the earth. So the witnesses... Uh, they do their witnessing, their testimony in the form of prophecy. The prophet, of course, has the task, the duty to declare the word of God. That's the task of the prophets. Again, so often we think about them predicting the future, but really their task is very simple. They were to announce the word of God. And sometimes uh, that involved future predictions, promises from God. But as witnesses, their task essentially was to bear public testimony for the Lord. Now this word, the fact they're called witnesses who prophesy, who bring the word of God, it helps us to understand how these terms are used in Revelation. You go back to Revelation chapter 1, because this reference to being a witness is used of Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Chapter 3, in the verse number 14, in a similar fashion, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness. So Christ ultimately is the first witness. But the same word for witness is used, translated as martyr in Revelation 2, 2 chapter, sorry, Revelation 2, verse 13. Regarding Antipas, who was my faithful martyr or witness. And also over in Revelation chapter 17, and the verse number 6, where it says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, this is the same word being used. Witness, martyrs, witnesses. Same word being used in each occasion. And it is a reference again to those who are testifying for Christ Jesus. Testimony. We said earlier on, this word speaks of the courtroom. It speaks of one who will give a public word of testimony or witness regarding something that they are aware of. And here, of course, their awareness is Christ Jesus. They're given the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 1 and the verse number 9, John says about his own ministry, that he's in Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the witnesses and the word testimony, they're also connected in the original. So the witnesses 
They bear witness. The martyrs, they bear testimony. These words, they all interrelate. And of course, is that not the task of the church? Are we as the church not sent out as witnesses after the great witness Christ himself? Does Christ not tell the church, ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses? Isn't that what he says? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the was part of the earth. And so here we find the church is fulfilling this function of a witness. So you look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 and the verse number 9. And when it opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them who that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now what I'm asking you to think about here is, who are these witnesses? Well, what is their duty? Their duty is to prophesy and to declare the word of God's. And when you look at that study in Revelation, you see that those who bear witness and tell the Word of God are the church who are being persecuted. They're functioning as witnesses in the world, and they're being slain for the Word of God, prophecy, and for the testimony which they held. And so you have this sense of the witnesses. Revelation chapter 12 again refers to the church overcoming, overcoming the devil by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. But look at Revelation chapter 12 and the verse number 17. And it says here again, similar, And the dragon was wroth of the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The witnesses in the church that is to be faithful unto death. The words of God regarding Christ. They are bearing testimony from the Word of God regarding Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do in our, in our lives as a church? We are those who use the Word of God to back up our testimony of Christ. This is who He is, and the Word of God confirms it. That's our task. One last reference, Revelation chapter 19 and the verse number 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, and here's the description of the church again, that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, and here's the seal, for the testimony, the witness of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. So who's, who's fulfilling this function? The duty is given to the witnesses, but who do we see doing that duty in Revelation? The church. Christ initially, and then the apostles, and then those who are under the apostles bringing the word of God. So that's the duty of these witnesses. Thirdly, please note the dress of the witnesses. Again, as we're trying to build a picture of these two witnesses, look how they are attired. Verse number three, they are clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is used in all the scriptures in various ways, but with a consistent theme that it respects humility and mourning and repentance and a contrition before God. Uh, let me show you a couple of verses. Turn back to Jeremiah, first of all. Jeremiah chapter 4. Because what we see again here, we see this garb is consistent with the prophet, but with the prophet in particular circumstances. This sackcloth is not coincidental. 
It's given descriptively to help us understand that these witnesses who are prophesying are doing so in the spirit of the Old Testament prophets. Like Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 4 and the verse number 8, For this gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. So Jeremiah's task as the weeping prophet is to bring words of judgment and announce the wrath of God. And so did we not see these witnesses? They are instructed between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. They are going to announce the wrath of God. It's going to be part of their job. Their witness is going to be about the judgment of God. And so the sackcloth is consistent with that. And then you see Joel. Again, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. You get to Joel and you will find there Joel chapter 1. And you see there, again, a similar picture, but this time, Joel chapter 1, the verse number 13, Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, howl, ye ministers of the altar, come lie, in, lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my gods. Here the description is for the saints of God, the servants of God, who are ministering again in the holy place, priests and ministers before the altar. But you see here, the sackcloth here speaks of those who are to get before God in prayer. They are to lament before God. These witnesses are coming and they're bringing words, handling judgment, but they do so with tears. And these are those who are before God in sackcloth. They're mourning as they see the wickedness of the world around them. And they're praying as they bear witness. You see, I, I sometimes worry that the church at times, they may witness with a, a triumphalist sort of manner. They, they smile as they tell people about the wrath of God and they, they proclaim the wrath of God upon the ungodly. Or rather, there should be tears flowing. This mingling of words of wrath against the ungodly alongside that humility that comes and weeps before God. For those who are under the wrath of God, you see, this dress, these witnesses, again, as a picture of the church, their dress is very, very significant. And well, that leads in the fourth place to the, the depiction of the witnesses. And the depiction is given to us here and in the verse number four and following. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Two olive trees. Two candlesticks. Firstly, this concept of two. Two, of course, in the Bible is the number of witness. And you see it described in that way in John chapter 8 in the verse number 17, where we see again the Lord drawing from this concept in the Old Testament Scriptures. Again, no crime could be convicted uh, without there being two witnesses. In John chapter 8, verse number 17, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. And the Lord used that to say, I bear witness, and the Father bears witness. There's two witnesses. And so the two, again, describes these witnesses who are standing before God. Revelation 11, verse 4, two standing before the God of the earth. That's a fearful thing. Here's the church bearing witness to Christ in the context of judgment, and they're doing so before the eyes of God, giving an account to God. Realizing that we are before God, in God's sight, and what we say 
Uh, it is being judged of God. Is it true? Is it false? Are we faithful to the word of God? Are we not? These witnesses too before God. If the two is used, we also see various types being used. There are two, and they are drawing upon various Old Testament types. Olive trees and candlesticks. You'll know immediately that refers back to Zechariah. You go back to Zechariah chapter 4. We've seen this uh, a few times in our studies in the last number of months. In Zechariah chapter 4 and the verse number 2. And I looked and beheld a candlestick all of gold, two olive trees by it, verse number three. Here's the drawing of this illusion from the candlesticks and the olive trees. And again, you know what the conclusion of that is, down in verse number six. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. So the, the candlestick, ye are the light of the world. The candlestick that draws light, that gives light in the power of the Spirit of God, the olive trees. And so the witnesses are drawing upon this picture. The church bears light in a dark place, in a dark world, by the power of the Spirit of God. That's the picture being used here. Again, we see so often in Revelation, these are not made-up images. They are new. They're drawing from Old Testament pictures. Drawn from Jeremiah. There's a reference to fire proceeding out of their mouth. You see, sometimes people draw pictures of Revelation. Uh, these cartoon books, and they have, they have witnesses coming, and there's literal fire coming out of their mouth. But they lose sight of the fact that Jeremiah was told that he would prophesy in a way that would bring fire out of his mouth. Nobody thinks that Jeremiah had fire-breathing abilities. No, the understanding is these are pictures, these are metaphors. Jeremiah chapter 5 and the verse number 14, let me read it to you now. Jeremiah 5, Wherefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. See the power of the gospel? The power of the prophetic word, the power of the revealed word, is a picture of something that comes and brings judgment upon the ungodly. You've also got references in Revelation chapter 11 to Moses and Elijah. They've parted shut heaven. That's Elijah, that it rained not in the days of their prophecy. Part over waters to turn to blood. That's Moses. Here they are God's messengers of judgment. And they have the power to announce God's judgment. They come in the power of God. Now, as I suggest, the olive trees and the candlesticks are not literal olive trees and candlesticks. So therefore we should not see a literal Jeremiah or a literal Moses or a literal Elijah. These are pictures showing the power of the church in the gospel age. That we are anointed. Like these Old Testament prophets were anointed with the Spirit of God. Is that not what Christ promised? Tarry until you be endued with power from on high. You shall be witnesses unto me after you receive the power of the Spirit of God. The New Testament church is a powerful witness. And we should never forget that. We don't see ourselves as Moses or Elijah or Jeremiah. But here the Lord is telling the suffering church in the first century, you're my witnesses and you'll witness with power. Oh, that we would see ourselves as to what we really are. 
those who come as the anointed ones with the authority of God, carrying God's word even of judgment, and as such we have God's protection. That's the language here. The idea, if any man would hurt us, he must in this manner be killed. It is, again, picturing the protection of God. And so Paul could say, troubled on every side, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. You think of the triumph of the Apostle Paul in all of his troubles. He understands he's under the protection of God's. This is a wonderful picture of the church. And it should greatly encourage us in these days. We have a day where the church needs to be reminded of who the church actually is and what it is. And as true witnesses, we go forward in power to announce the gospel of Christ from the Word of God. That's our task. Not to make up the Scriptures, but to reveal the Scriptures to a lost world, announcing Christ in all of His glory. What a glorious thing it is to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.